The Audible is proud to have Trader Joe's as its presenting sponsor for 2018. Trader Joe's, where it's always game time and the game is value. What's value? At Trader Joe's, value is where quality and price come together. Snacks, great value. Drinks, great value. Fruits and veggies, great value. Learn more at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. It is Monday morning after the Super Bowl, and what an exciting Super Bowl it was. Stu, are you rooting for the Eagles, or are you a Patriots fan? What's going I don't know how anybody outside of Boston could be rooting for the Patriots at this point. It's, uh, it's, it's gotten old, so it was cool to see somebody new in it. But in particular, you know, I'm not an NFL guy, but... This was a really fun and exciting game, in large part because it felt like we were watching a college game. Yeah, maybe they maybe they overdid it on talking about RPOs when yeah, some of them actually were play-action passes. But, man, it, there was a ton of offense. felt a little like a Big 12 game. I mean, it was a ridiculous amount of passing yards. And, you know, we've seen this happen, and we've heard about this a lot from college coaches talking about how much the NFL has sampled, especially offensively, from what they do. And I think especially uh, we saw that on evidence, you know, all night. And just a game that turned out to be a shootout is just both quarterbacks just picked apart the other defense. You know, you were right about it seemed at times like some company was paying Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth to say RPO as often as possible. And frankly, on some of those plays, I'm not even sure that you would know in real time whether or not it was an RPO versus a play action. Yeah, I thought, uh, you know, just following some college coaches, Ricky Ronnie, who's the Penn State offensive coordinator and had been their quarterback coach, he had uh, tweeted out something like, message to broadcasters, they're not all RPOs, they're play-action passes. Yeah. And and I think that was kind of a common thread you were seeing from a lot of people as they, they watch the broadcast. And as you said, if they're they're calling the game, there's a, there's a ton of stuff that's going on for them to keep tabs on. And so I think just... After a while, I mean, I hope somebody wasn't doing a shot for every time the the, the term RPO came up because there would have been a lot of drunk folks in but that it was, uh, bar bet. It was cool to see Nick Foles excel on that stage. He, I mean, it reminded me a lot of Baker Mayfield's first half in the Rose Bowl where he just couldn't miss. And, of course, the common theme of catching a touchdown pass. But Nick Foles has to carry a little bit of special meaning to you. Wasn't he on the cover of your book? He was. I actually have got to know him back when I did my recruiting book meat market like a dozen years ago. And he, he was just very different back then. He was so, especially from different from so many of the recruits I dealt with. He had zero sense of entitlement, seemed to have no ego. He was more about like when I met him in Austin, he was really, he, you know, I met him and his family and he brought along, he had a friend who was a kicker on the team. It was just more about trying to get that kid some publicity than he was anything about his own attention. He was just seemed to be a very mature, very grounded kid, and that's kind of carried him through because everybody you talk to who knows him really well, so that's who he is. And Sonny Dykes, when I talked to a couple of weeks ago, he coached him at, at Arizona. He was his offensive coordinator, said that was the same kid who, when he didn't win the quarterback battle to Matt Scott and he got his chance, he was focused and he was determined and it was going to be okay. I can control what I can control. 
And the same thing happened here where the guy goes from, you know, having that amazing year with Chip Kelly, 27 touchdowns, only two interceptions, then struggles to the point where he's almost out of football. And then he's behind Carson Wentz, who's his budding star, and Carson Wentz goes down, and Nick Foles jumps in and plays great in the playoffs and is a Super Bowl MVP. And it's a pretty sweet story to see how it's come together for him. So I, I think I tweeted about this when he won the NFC Championship. In the preseason 2010, this is when Larry Scott had kind of first gotten to the Pac, well, it was in the Pac-10, and they were just on an all-out publicity blitz. And that preseason, they flew four of their star quarterbacks. This is when I still lived in New York. They flew four of their star quarterbacks to New York for like an East Coast media blitz. So they invited a bunch of us who were based in New York to a dinner with these four quarterbacks. And they were Matt Barkley, Andrew Luck, Jake Locker, and Nick Foles. Never in a million years at that night would I have guessed that Nick Foles would be the one of the group that would be the first to... Be Super Bowl MVP. Yeah, lead a team to the super, lead a team to a Super Bowl victory. Yeah, I mean, it shows you never know. I mean, how some of this stuff is going to play out. This was a kid who bounced around in the recruiting process in a big way, and just as we uh, as we're closing in on another signing day in a couple of days, it's it's a fitting reminder just to kind of take everything with a grain of salt. Well, speaking of signing day, that's what we want to talk about this week. We have a great guest. Unfortunately, due to some technical issues, I wasn't able to join you guys on this conversation, but we want to bring on Tom Luganville, who you know from ESPN, but hopefully also from the All-American, where he has been writing articles all season and leading into signing day. Let's get to your guys' conversation. And now we're joined by my old colleague and Stu is current one, Tommy Luganville. Tom, this is a big week. It's not as big as it normally is for you the first Wednesday in February, but National Signing Day. Are we still calling it National Signing Day, by the way? Yeah, but you know what? I'm calling it the late National Signing Day because the early signing day is no longer early. That is signing day. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> you guys have a ton. You're going to be part of ESPN. Use uh, signing day coverage. There are a lot of kids, including a, a bunch still among top 100 recruits who are going to be announcing uh, this coming Wednesday, especially South Florida kids. Let's start there. You have two great cornerbacks, top 10 players, both announcing Alabama and Miami are in the mix uh, for both of them. So tell us about these two cornerbacks, Patrick Sertan Jr., famous son, and uh, Tyson Campbell. Well, the first thing I'll say is the six foot two and six foot three corners aren't standing on every street corner. You know, they're not growing on trees. Every coach you talk to wants tall corners with length on the perimeter, and that's why these two guys are so highly coveted. And um, you know, you look at the great defensive teams in college football. You know, they've got terrific front people, but then their back end players are tall. They look like safeties. And that's what everybody's trying to get. And, you know, you mentioned the likes of Miami, Alabama, LSU, I think, in the league for Sertan Jr. You know, Georgia and in uh, Tennessee kind of getting in, in on the mix late. But all of those teams, man, they're all, they're all seeking the same thing. And even though the player pool, Bruce, has, has shrunk to a puddle, that doesn't mean that there's still not great players available. You know, there's roughly around 700, a little more than 700 players left in this class to sign in 2018 and we're going to have 12 players make their announcement with us on Wednesday and and those include you know our number one ranked offensive tackle Nick Petit-Ferrer these two corners it's going to be a it's going to be
interesting to see how these things close out when you consider that most teams now are just looking to sign two to four guys instead of, you know, 25. These two kids are really long, as you you know, exceptionally for cornerbacks. So mm-hmm. where do they rank in the last – I mean, you've been doing this for longer, 10 years plus, but where would you say they rank in the last five years of cornerback prospects you've seen come out? I think they're in that Tease, Tabor, Vernon Hargrave, Patrick Peterson, uh, you know, Minka Fitzpatrick, who was originally a corner, Eli Apple conversation. There are those types of guys. All of those guys are six foot or taller. All of those guys had long wingspans, were able to come on campus and get involved quickly and make an impact. It's one of the reasons why it's such a heavily pursued position. And, you know, you can find the 5'8", 5'9", 5'10", corner. They're everywhere, but nobody wants to play with them anymore because the wide receivers have become so big and physical. So I think if you look at some of the best players, you know, across the country that have played major college football at that position that have gone on to become One of the kids you have announcing is a, has a unique story. He's a California kid, really big quarterback, Tanner McKee. Uh, you guys have him number 76 overall. Alabama, Stanford, Texas, Texas A&M, Washington, all in the mix. What's unique about this kid is he's going on, a, on an LDS mission for his first two years of college, right? So he won't come back till, what is it, 2020? Yeah, 2020, 2021, around there, yeah. Does that, in some ways, do you think that benefits him just in terms of how schools are recruiting him? Or do you have to wait and recruit him again all over again to see what he's going to decide? Like, I remember Ben Olsen was, a, you know, was the number one yeah. quarterback recruit, started out at BYU, ended up at UCLA after his mission. Like, what are the, what, like, how are schools kind of handling this kid's recruitment and how, and what do you think of him as a prospect? If anything, I think it clarifies the the process for the actual prospect. For Tanner, you're going to know right up front exactly who is really serious when they're having to make a projection two years out. And, you know, other teams may say, you know what, we need a little bit more of an immediate impact. We need a guy that can come in and contribute right now. So, you know, we're out of the mix here. So I think that helps the the prospect. I mean, it's an investment with no guarantees on the back end. And, it almost as if it, it furthers the recruitment, even if he's not even in the country, of having to, to stay in touch. And I think the other thing that's interesting is, and I, and I would have to clarify how this gets worked out, but if he does sign, does he count as an initial prospect in this recruiting class for you as far as counting against your numbers? Because if he does, and you don't potentially have his services for two years, that could have a detrimental effect. And so that, that's another thing that these teams as universities are, are tracking. If you look at the schools that are recruiting him, there's schools that are in that mix of how they run their offense. You know, they're not necessarily devoted to the, the dual threat plus one quarterback run scheme that's going to be heavily zone read operated. That's not him, and that's not the schools that are in contention. So I think the marriage between the potential suitors and his skill set is very strong. So Alabama's one of the schools in the mix. It's been interesting to follow their their recruit, recruiting class. Obviously, Nick Saban pretty much kills it every year. Uh, around the national title game, I spent some time with Ed Manowitz, who had been their personnel guy and their head of the personnel department. And we talked about how this early signing period has affected them. And one of the things he had told me was, you know, a lot of the kids that they would maybe swoop, he didn't use the word swoop in on late, but that was, you know, kind of my, my version of it, uh, would come in late in the process and maybe be able to pull away from 
the mid power five schools. He goes, those kids are gone now. So now you're coming back to maybe a, 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 a notch below them. So as it relates to quarterback kids, we've, we saw it got a lot of attention this weekend. Brady White's younger, bro, younger brother, Brevin, uh, out here in, in Southern California. He had been committed to Princeton for a long time. He took a visit to Alabama and decided, hey, I'm going to go to the Ivy League instead. I think that you know surprised a lot of people. How do you think this has impacted Nick Saban and how they're viewing? Because it's a unique situation where you have a starting quarterback who was the SEC player of the year last year and then a true freshman who everybody knows is ultra-talented comes in and wins the national title. And, and theoretically, you're going to have him for at least two more years, probably three. How does that shape up for them as they, as they try to fill up their depth chart? Well, and I think the recruitment of the quarterback position right now for Alabama is far more about the future of, of Jalen Hurts and where they are in terms of numbers than it is, is than it is them actually needing a quarterback to be the face of the future. And I think Brevin White saw that. I think Brevin White saw that, hey, listen, Alabama needs a quarterback, but they more need a body than a quarterback. And uh, and, and that's fine. I get it. I, there's another quarterback in Arizona right now by the name of Brock Purdy who's been heavily recruited by Boise State, Iowa State, a handful of middle-to-bottom-tier Power 5 schools, but Alabama comes in and offers him, and they're offering him offering him because they're concerned that, you know, come the summertime, uh, Jalen Hurts, if he doesn't win the job, may not be a part of the program. So I think the quarterbacks that are being recruited by Alabama right now are probably starting to understand that. And it, and it has an effect on on what they're going to do. I don't think you'll see Alabama waste a scholarship on a quarterback now unless they, they feel really good about it. I could maybe more so see them, you know, waiting and, and applying that in the future. But it'll, it'll be interesting to see how, how things unfold because it, it's very clear this is about where Jalen Hurts is in June more so than it is anything else. Tommy, who are teams you, you expect – could make a big move in the recruiting rankings, you know, come Wednesday night and beyond that? You know, I, I look to the Pac-12. You know, the Pac-12 is a conference signed the fewest players of all five Power Five, or all six Power Five conferences. SC probably has the most to gain and the most out there because they've got numbers available and several high-profile prospects within the state of California, whether it's Isaac Taylor Stewart, whether it's Elijah Griffin, whether it's Devon Williams, uh, just to name a few that are still out there that have, you know, SC as, the, as their finalists. I, I, that's the team that I look to that probably is in best position. UCLA across town certainly has to fulfill their roster, but I don't think you're going to see that with a high level of some of these undeclared guys that everybody's aware of. I think there will be a little bit more of a different approach uh, one in which that they're just trying to get through this thing so they can move on and lay out their blueprints for the 2019 and 2020 class. If you were to ask me that question about teams that did really well in the early signing period and I still think are going to close well, I look to LSU and I look to Texas. Texas may actually have still five to seven spots available from holdover scholarships from last year's class that they chose not to go with which could really expand this class and, and, and make it talented. And they're in the running for, you know, Tommy Bush, Lawrence Keyes, some other uh, potential uh, defensive linemen. So I, I like Texas as a closer. And then LSU, I think if they close with Patrick Sertain, if they're able to get the quarterback, James Foster, out of Alabama, and maybe close on Jamar Chase, that would be three really good high-profile players for a class that's already pretty big. 
Yeah, you mentioned Texas. And so last year was pretty well documented that Texas, and it was, it was a late, you know, it was a coaching transition. There wasn't a lot of success in state for Tom Herman. This year, it's been the complete opposite. He has loaded up, as you said. Do we expect this to be a little bit similar to what's going to happen next year at Texas A&M with Jimbo Fisher? He's already got some big commits in the boat for 2019. Do you think that, okay, it's this year's the year Texas loads up in state and, and clobbers everybody, and then next year, is it going to be Jimbo Fisher or is it going to be the battle between the two you know, blue blood programs there? Well, I've expected, and I've seen, I think we've seen evidence of this, that when you have your first full calendar year, after you get past this moment, you start to make those big strides. We've seen that with Gus Melzon at Auburn. We saw that this year with Kirby Smart at Georgia. We just saw that now um, with Tom Herman at Texas. Uh, I would expect Texas A&M to, to make a big jump and a significant level of improvement going forward. But I also think the competitive environment on the recruiting landscape is far more equal now than it was maybe three to four years ago between how kids perceive Texas A&M and how they perceive Texas. I think Texas has improved their perception. The Big 12 with Oklahoma's inclusion in the college football playoff, I think Lincoln Riley and his, him being the face of that program has improved the perception in recruiting in, in the Big 12. You've got the two blue bloods in that conference, and most importantly, I think the way that either an Oklahoma or a Texas tries to ward off Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M in the future is you've got to beat Texas A&M on the best defensive players. Because the only way the Big 12 is playing for a national championship is if they're a, a quality team on defense. And right now they don't have one. So that's how you beat Texas A&M, in my opinion, recruiting. There's plenty of offensive guys to go around. Texas and Oklahoma got to beat Texas A&M on the best defensive players that are out there. Okay, give me three guys who you think next year – will be the Ed Oliver of the class who will be come in, make a big splash? Well, that is a really, really good question. Okay, if I were to look at guys that would be that type of immediate impact, high-profile player, I would probably say, this is a really good question. You did that, man. Let's say I'm going to go with a couple of skill guys. Number one, Let's go with Patrick Sertan Jr. because I think regardless of where he goes, he's making a big impact at a corner. It's at a premium position. There's no doubt in my mind he'll uh, he'll get on the field. Number two, Justin Shorter, the wide receiver. He is almost identical to what Penn State had in Chris Godwin. But he's even bigger, right? He's like, is he legit six three, six four? Bigger. And I had I had Fiesta Bowl with Penn State and Washington, and there's going to be a need for a big playmaker out there. So I think I think Justin Shorter is kind of arriving at the right time. I think B.J. Foster at Texas is an immediate impact player in their defensive secondary, not just because he's physically capable, but because he's so mentally ahead of the curve that the leap from high school to the major college level won't be all that significant for him. Okay, then the flip side is, and I, is there a fit? Like, who would be the Jonathan Taylor? Was a former, you know, three-star guy, goes to Wisconsin, tears it up, puts up huge numbers. Is there somebody you're like, uh, you know, I don't know if we could give him a four-star or a five-star, but I just see him being a big guy, a big production guy in, a, in early on in his career. Just the fit yeah, you there's, like. There's a guy, and, it, and it's interesting because we actually, in our final release of the rank, 
we gave this guy our lowest four-star grade. He's been a three-star guy the entire time throughout the process, and it's not going to surprise you when I tell you where he signed because this is exactly what they do. But there is a player, and you'll remember this from the West Coast, Park Gissinger. His dad played for the San Diego Chargers. He's out of Chaminade College Prep in West Hills, California. He's a six foot three, 225-pound outside linebacker, defensive end, tweener type. That is your high motor, great player, does all the technical things right, but hasn't scratched the surface of where he's going to be. So when you kind of look at the marriage between how a program develops their players and the type of upside that this guy has, that's probably the guy that I would say along the defensive front that's got a, a bright future to develop, Parks Kissinger. Where is he headed? Michigan State. Yeah, well, that, that, that would fit in with their production and everything they seem to have been I, getting. Yeah. So before I want to get out, there's a couple other things I want to get you non-recruiting on. This uh, yesterday, as we're taping, it's it's Monday morning. We just had the Super Bowl, and for people who are watching the game, and Stu and I talked about this a little bit early in the podcast, just about everything was said to be RPO, and some of it I think was you know seeing people say, okay, that's play action pass. You're on the sideline for college games. How much have you seen things change? since you've done that in the last five years of what people are, especially you've done a ton of Auburn games, obviously they're on the front end of the curve with, with RPOs compared to what we saw in 2017. Right. You know, I, I, I'll tell you, the, the, the run-pass option game has kind of become the ultimate, the ultimate neutralizer. It's become the, the way for a team that maybe isn't quite as talented or deep across the board to compete with teams on defense that are better than they are, that maybe can overwhelm them a little bit. And, and what I mean by that is you essentially use what the defense is doing against them. You know, you, you isolate players to where you're not asking the quarterback to go through progression reads. You're asking the quarterback to identify a single player and what that player does. And if the player makes one choice, you do this. And if the player makes the other choice, you do this. And it's really simplified the process for the quarterback who, instead of having to come off a of play action from under center, and now he's got to go high-low re, he's got free safety week coming, so he's got pressure, where did he go with the ball, boom, boom, boom. This thing has neutralized the blitz game because it puts you in the shotgun, and you can, you can RPO the blitz. If, if you think you're going to get pressure, that's what can tell you where to go with the football. So I think what it's really done is it, it's become innovative, it's allowed teams to compete on a higher-end scale than maybe they would under normal offensive philosophies where they're not as good athletically. And it's allowed the quarterbacks to get into rhythm and to play fast and not think a lot and ultimately use the defense against themselves. Because you're putting a player in what I call a conflict of assignment. He's being told to do something, or whatever he's being told to do, you're doing the exact opposite, and all you got to do is watch that one player. All right, so as I mentioned, you have a unique background with the XFL. You coached in it that year, but you, I remember the story you had. You got to share it about how you found out the league was gone and your voicemails. Yeah, so, um, you know, in those days, this was 2001, and you still, you know, you, cell phones were kind of getting there, but you still had a landline, and in part of that landline, you actually had a, an answering machine that had like the tape and everything. When you came home, you remember your light would be yeah. oh, yeah. it would say number five or six, whatever, how many messages you got. So 
myself and my fiance, now wife at the time, and our director of football operations and his wife went up camping in the Sierra Nevada mountains for four days. And keep in mind, at this point, you didn't have smartphones. You didn't have up-to-the-minute access to the, the goings-on of the world. And I come home and uh, walk into our apartment there in, in Long Beach, and, I mean, our answer machine's got like 20-something messages on it. So I start playing each message, and each one after another is somebody on there essentially giving their condolences. Oh, Tom, Tennille, and my wife's name, oh, we're so sorry to hear if there's anything we can do, please let us know. But for about the first 10 or 12 of these messages, Bruce, yeah. nobody's actually telling us what they're sorry about. So I'm assuming either my mother's passed away or my father's passed away. Something horrible has happened. About the 11th call, my, I get a voicemail, and it's my dad. Tommy, Dad, hey, listen, uh, I know you're camping, and he was just nonchalant, but I just got back from Connecticut, and the XFL has ceased operations immediately. Um, he's going to be in the office tomorrow morning at 7.30. I'll explain later. And that's how I found out that the league had folded. Well, on the bright side, at least you knew your dad was still alive. So, I mean, that's... Yeah, my dad's still alive, mom's still alive. It wasn't all that tragic. It's still a game of football. Oh, that's awesome. I remember that's hearing that story. So what do you think is going to be with this league restarting in 2020? I mean, are there enough players? People, I mean, are there enough players to go around? Bruce, there's more than enough players. And, and I, I'll be the first one to say, and listen, I, I've seen the 30-30, you know, had phone calls about it when they were making it the whole nine yards. And, and I understand that so much of the criticism comes from the presentation of the league. Uh, particularly as it related to television. And as you know, in professional sports, you can't have a league without television revenue. Television is what fuels the whole thing. But I can tell you, and I could give you the names of 50 other coaches, good seasoned coaches, coaches that have coached for 30, 40 years in college football and in the NFL that were a part of that league, that will tell you that it was one of the best jobs that they ever had, that from an internal standpoint of the internal knowledge of how the league was run from a football perspective, forget all the other stuff that was going around, it was tailored perfectly. I mean, think about it. You had small manageable rosters. You had no individual incentives. So every player got paid the same, and they only got paid more if they won. All right? You uh, had your training camp where you were in camp with other teams so you could practice against other teams. Uh, everything was manageable from a financial perspective. So what I think will happen is, is Vince will take all the things that worked, and believe it or not, there were a lot of things that worked, particularly on the football side. He'll apply those this time around, and what he has as an advantage that he didn't have before is there are so many other mediums to stream this now. You know, you could do this from an online perspective. I always felt it should have been a cable league. It should have never been on network TV, but... Whether it's Hulu or Amazon or Netflix or whatever it may be that's out there, there's different ways to stream this. And first of all, fans have an appetite for spring football, and we need it for the players. There has to be a place to go. And, and our, our team and most of the teams in the league, if you weren't in the NFL and you were a, a, a great football player, you were playing in the XFL at that time. We had taken away all of NFL Europe's best players, some of the, you know, a select few of the Arena League and select few of the, of the Canadian Football League. So contrary to popular opinion, you know, there were guys on our team in L.A. that, that had Super Bowl ring. You know, Tommy Maddox the following year took the Pittsburgh Steelers to the AFC Championship game. So unfortunately, how it was presented didn't necessarily tell the whole story, but I think, I think they can remedy that 
And I think the structure of the league financially from a football perspective, there's plenty of good coaches, plenty of good players out there to provide a viable option. So your personal connection, so you were a coach in the league. If the league doesn't fold, do you think you ever would have ended up in TV? Where do you think you are now if the league doesn't fold? You know, it's so interesting you say that. Probably, probably not. And I'll tell you, it's interesting because my lead into TV actually came as a result of my next job. I went to work with Jerry Jones at the Dallas Cowboys, and I was involved in their player personnel department and was heading up Jerry Jones's Arena Football League team, the Dallas Desperados, at that time. But when I was doing the NFL stuff in their scouting department, one of, uh, we were a client of, and you will know this name, we were a client of at the time, Scott Pink. Yeah, sure. So I began, yeah, I began to get involved in working with them because they were providing us, as they were with other NFL franchises, uh, information. When I ended up leaving the Dallas Cowboys organization, go back into coaching, I had stayed involved with them. And that's actually what led to me joining them full time who at the time had a contract with ESPN, and the rest is history. And it all happened right around the time of 2005-2006 when ESPN launched ESPNU and created their recruiting arm, which they didn't have before. So to answer your question, I took a long way around. Probably not, because that thing, and I believe this too, Bruce, had it come back for the second year and had there been an opportunity to, to get it right from a television perspective, that league would still be going right now. I truly believe that. And, and I can tell you, I don't know about you, but in the 17 years since it folded, I've never ran into a single fan that attended a game in person that didn't love it. The, in, the in-game experience was awesome, but that unfortunately wasn't how it was presented from a broadcast standpoint. So hopefully it'll get that fixed. Hmm. All right. Well, Tommy, we know you're busy this week, especially so. Uh, appreciate always connecting with you. And... Um, Tell us, tell our listeners where they could uh, follow you and and find out more about the about what you guys are doing on signing day. Yeah, we'll be on College Football Live. I will be uh, 5 p.m. Eastern on ESPN two uh, Monday through Thursday of this week, and then we will be on for five hours uh, on National Signing Day. First two hours on ESPN U starting at 10 a.m. Eastern. Final three hours on ESPN two. Uh, we'll cl- conclude at 3 p.m. and then we'll do an hour long College Football Live recruiting edition uh, right after from 3 to 4 Eastern time on Wednesday. All right. Thanks, Tom. We will look forward to checking out all the coverage you got, and uh, and it's always good to talk to you. Great, Bruce. Thanks for having me. We're going to get to the mailbag in a second. First off, Bruce, there was some interesting news last week that came out from our buddy Dennis Dodd, who's just been crushing it this offseason, I must say, that he got a hold of some of the text messages and other documents that the players who have transferred from Ole Miss are going to be using to make their case why they should be granted immediate eligibility, basically saying they were completely misled by Hugh Freeze when they were signing uh, in twenty early 2016. They were led to believe from him that the sanctions were going to be no big deal, that they weren't even... It was the same line that we saw trotted out publicly in some media reports at the time. Oh, this was all Houston nuts doing nothing to worry about. So that's going to be their case to the NCAA, and they have... So what do you think the NCAA is going to do on this? Well, this is kind of unprecedented. I I can't think of anything like this. You know, usually in the past you were granted a waiver, a hardship waiver, if 
somebody's parent was sick and they were going back and they wanted to go back to be close to their parent or if there was in a couple cases some sort of proof that they were treated poorly i don't know i don't want to use the word abuse but some sort of poor treatment at the former school that, so they would grant them these hardship waivers they don't really do that anymore but this would seem to be a pretty strong case i mean shay patterson being the most notable obviously trying to get eligible immediately at Michigan. I'm reminded of, okay, let's go back in time a little bit. Remember Chantrell Henderson? I do, yeah. He had been committed to, you know, ended up at Miami, committed to USC. Committed to USC and got out of the letter of intent, right, once the sanctions got handed down. Correct. Uh, I was ranked as the number one player in the country, had a really up-and-down career, had some success in the NFL before kind of, I don't know what's gone on with him since, but... um, but yeah, high-profile player. In this case, my gut is that the NCAA will clear these guys and let Shea Patterson play. I just don't think the NCAA wants to wear the black hat, if at all possible, when they don't have the choice to. I agree. I also think that because there's so much documentation, because this isn't just uh, he said, she said, that you know, if they were to deny it, I think the next step would be I mean, they've hired a lawyer. So it seems to me that they're planning the next step would be to sue them. So I, my guess is they just make it easy and let them play. And, of course, that would be a really big deal for Michigan if Shea Patterson could play. He is a proven star quarterback who would have an immediate impact on a program that has struggled at that position the last couple of years. Now, well, Michigan has, has two really interesting storylines that could impact their team in 2018 in a big way. One is Shea Patterson, who I would say would be the most talented college quarterback Jim Harbaugh's coach since Andrew Luck. You know, really good arm, good feet, very quick release. I think he would be a big upgrade from what they had. The other one is, they, you know, as I reported on a couple of days ago, Calvin Anderson, who a lot of people think is one of the top grad transfers at any position. He's a left tackle. He started three years at Rice. He told me that right now his two leaders are Texas and Michigan. So if Michigan could end up winning that battle and getting – Anderson at left tackle and also getting their their quarterback cleared that'd be some much needed good news for Jim Harbaugh going into 2018 season now there's a more under the radar quarterback transfer that occurred over the weekend you want to tell us about that right so Drew Brown put up pretty big numbers at Hawaii this past year in the last two years he's thrown for over 5,000 yards He's a grad transfer, or he will be, and he's going to go to Oklahoma State, where obviously they have to replace a four-year starting quarterback in Mason Rudolph. And the Cowboys honestly weren't sure which direction they've had to go here. So what's interesting to me here, now Drew Brown is six feet, 200 pounds. The book on him, from you talk to people who are around the uh, Hawaii program, extremely hard worker, loves ball. Uh, not a great arm, just average arm strength, but really smart. So you think he would come in and be able to pick up the system in a hurry. What's tricky here is, you know, he basically told the Hawaii staff two weeks, two weeks before this that, hey, I'm going to leave. And it was like right after, I think it caught those guys off guard. It was right after one of their other, tra- one of their other quarterbacks said, you know what, Drew's here. I'm going to go transfer down to an FCS program. So... It's it's not easy to be at the at the uh, at the group of five level when it comes to having stuff like this happen. You know, you have a quarterback, you you develop him, and then all of a sudden, 
you know, he he may go and you may not see it coming. Yeah, and, and I will say that it was no secret. It was pretty well known that Oklahoma State was looking hard for a grad transfer quarterback. So when that's the case, it usually means they don't have a lot of faith in the guys who were waiting in the wings to succeed Mason Rudolph. And obviously with that offense that Mike Gundy runs, you know, they're not going to suddenly turn into a handed off 60 times team. They need somebody who can throw the ball. Yeah, look, they have they lose James Washington and Marcel Aitman, but they still have some really talented young receivers and their backs are really good. They have r- some stud young running backs in there. So there's really good skill talent for Drew Brown to to step into if he ends up winning the job. Okay, Bruce, we'll get back to the podcast in a second, but let me ask you something. How's your Lisa mattress treating you recently? Pretty darn good, Stu. It's it's so comfortable. It's a firm mattress, but you just kind of sink into it a little bit. As we've said before, this is one of the best, if not the best, uh, sponsored deal our listeners have gotten just because it's, it's such a good high-end product that you know there's zero complaints with it. Indeed. If you're in the market for a new mattress, or even if you didn't necessarily think you were in the market for a new mattress, but you thought, hey, you know what? It has been a while since we bought a new one. Go to lisa.com slash audible for $100 off the Lisa mattress using promo code audible. And just so you know, Lisa is an innovative direct-to-consumer online mattress brand that's also socially conscious. They're driven by a mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody. Lisa donates one mattress to a shelter for every 10 they sell through their 110 program. And you can try it. First of all, you can go to over 80 West Elm stores nationwide, give it a try there, but also try the mattress in your own home for a hundred nights, risk-free with free shipping always. So again, lisa.com promo code audible to get a hundred dollars off the lisa mattress of your choice lisa.com promo code audible it's a heck of a deal still all right let's get to your emails as always you can send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com we're going to start with a couple that we wanted to get to last week but ran out of time This question is from Brian Stewart in Beaufort, Georgia. Stu and Bruce, you guys have talked about why major programs, Nebraska specifically, don't switch to a triple option offense. But what is your take on perennial bottom dwellers not considering it? Wouldn't a school like Vanderbilt or Illinois or Oregon State, schools which will never out-recruit their conference rivals, benefit from the curveball the option brings to the table? I would say that that probably wouldn't be a bad idea for a school like Oregon State. Now, would the fans be excited to come out and watch it is always a question. But there was some talk last year about whether Oregon State might try to hire Kenny Amatololo. I don't know what exactly became of that. But, yeah, he's got a good point. I mean, Georgia Tech has been competitive in the ACC. They had a couple down years, but for the most part, they've been competitive in the ACC. They've won their division a couple times under Paul Johnson. And, obviously, they are not recruiting at the level of Clemson, Florida State, several other, Virginia Tech, several other ACC programs. The one that I don't know, I'm not so sure about, is Vanderbilt. I just think with the speed the SEC has on the defensive line in particular, I I think that would not go well. Well, the the counterpunch argument, I like what, what Brian is saying. You know, this is a point, and it dawned on me a couple of, you mentioned uh, 
Cal and, and Oregon State a little bit. I think you mentioned Cal. I did not mention Cal, but feel free okay. to bring them up. So Kenny Matola also was was you know a candidate there on the at least on their radar. And the point is, when Sonny Dykes was at Cal, it was like, hey, the air raid. No one's won a national title with the air raid. Now, obviously, Lincoln Riley came real close. I don't necessarily think if you're why, – why I like what Brian – the direction he's going is if you're Oregon State, you're Illinois, you're Vanderbilt, you're one of these second-tier power five conference schools, I don't think it's realistic to aspire to winning a national title. Because if you get a coach who's that good who's in there, he may end up getting to 10 wins and doing kind of what James Franklin did and going to a bigger blue-blooded program. But if you get – and I use the example of Mike Leach. Mike Leach I don't think is ever going to win a national title. But he took a program that won nine games in four years, and I think it's pretty safe to say consistently is going to be like you know a fringe top twenty-five team now that he's got his system rolling. And granted, it's probably easier to recruit to the air raid than it would be to a triple option offense. But I think the idea is you're going to run some curveball that somebody say, well, that may never win a national title, but you can win eight or nine games, which we've seen certainly Navy perennial does that, perennially does that. And and Paul Johnson's had quite a bit of success at Georgia Tech, so I think there's a that's a good argument for that. Now maybe Georgia Tech is a little bit different in that you're hey you're in Atlanta you could probably you have a lot of stuff to sell to kids you know you could probably do anything there and and, and win. I mean Bobby Ross won a national title there what 25 years ago I guess. So I'm not sure if if Georgia Tech is necessarily, but if you're one of these other schools, I do think it makes some sense to try to do that. You know, Vanderbilt, way back in the day, when Jerry DiNardo was their coach, did run a little bit of the option. I, I don't remember. I don't know. Do you remember? Did you ever watch Vanderbilt when he was there, like to know what extent of an option team they were? But I know that was a part of it. I do, honestly, I don't remember. There's a kid from my high school that went there to play a couple of years into DiNardo's tenure. But I think it was a different era back then. Sure. We're talking about the 90s. And it's just this is really before the passing game really blew up across the board as it is now yeah i think it would be a tough tough sell today but i don't know it's a little weird that georgia tech has been doing this for as long as they have and that they still are the only one that nobody else in that time i think he's been there since 2008 is trying to run that offense even though they've had a lot of success with it and certainly you know some of the um group of five teams i mean look at what look at what georgia southern was doing before until they scrapped it I mean, they were having great success with it until that last coaching change has not gone well. Yeah, I think there's also like a measure, though, of, you know, there are some slightly different curveball kind of kind of offenses. What what Kansas State does with Bill Snyder, that's certainly not what you typically expect. You know, it's it's so different from what you see in the rest of the Big 12. I mean, it's a very patient run game and how they how those plays develop. Now they throw it a little bit more. They throw it quite a bit more than like the you know Army and Navy do, but it's not like they're throwing it all over the yard either. You know, we had an interview on our site last week with Dana Dimmel, who is now the UTEP head coach, but had been K-State's offensive coordinator, I believe, since Snyder came back the second time and, and worked with him on the original staff too, where he said he claimed that Kansas State runs one of the most complex passing games in the country. Okay. I, I, you know, look, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's semantics. I think when we think of what's complex, we tend to think, you know, they don't throw it a ton. 
They don't so, throw it a ton, but that doesn't mean it's not. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not intricate. Yeah, I mean, know, he's trying to say do. it's not some, you know, peewee passing game by any means. They may not throw it that often, but apparently the the scheme behind he basically says there's a reason why you only usually see upperclassmen quarterbacks at Kansas State. Interesting. Gordon Cameron from Burlington, Ontario. Good day, gentlemen. A lot of ink gets spilled every year over whether or not the latest round of head coaching hires will succeed or fail. However, there are 10 other guys who have a major impact on how a team does. Which school do you think has upgraded its assistant coaching staff the most so far this offseason? That's a good question. You know who I think did actually really well, Stu? It's going to sound a little bit like redundant, but I think Alabama did really well. Hmm. And it's like, okay, they just won a national title. They made two hires that I can speak to. Now, they've made a, a few others that, in, in addition. But Jeff Banks is arguably as good a special teams coordinator as there is in the country last year. He came from Texas A&M where they led the country in block kicks. He's also a fantastic recruiter. I think he was a big upgrade. And I think Josh Gaddis, who did a, a, a terrific job coaching receivers at Penn State, really develops players. I think Josh Gaddis was a huge addition for them, too. I really like those two moves for Alabama. Now, look, there's they, have, they lose Jeremy Pruitt, who I think was an integral piece for Nick Saban around the defense, and we'll see how things go forward on that side of the ball. Obviously, Nick Saban's really involved on that side of the ball, too. But just in terms of those two hires, I think that was, that was an impressive work for Saban. And I also don't know if he wants us to include, are we allowed to include you know, head coaches who put together staffs from I think, scratch. I, uh, the way I read that question was he didn't want to do okay. that. Because I was so. going to say, I, I've been very impressed with the staff Jimbo Fisher has put together at A&M, most notably, obviously, hiring away Mike Elko as defensive coordinator from Notre Dame, and then a lot of other guys who he's either worked with at Florida State or who you just kind of recognize from being from being around the country. And also, you mentioned it last week, you know, that was a – I think – Strength coach just doesn't get talked about enough. Like to me, the whoever who, who you hire as the strength coach is as important, if not more important, than the receivers coach. And Jerry Schmidt is got a you know a heck of a reputation from being having a lot of success at a high level program. Yeah, although I I do think Lincoln Riley responded well. He got Benny Wiley. They had been at Texas Tech together. A lot of that staff was there. I know Leach Leach worshipped Benny, Benny Wiley. Um, you know, he had bounced around. He had been at, at Tennessee and Texas briefly, but uh, a lot of those guys knew him from his time in Lubbock. And I think I think he will fit well with that with that staff. I will, let me throw one other at you. I think, and this is another, the rich get richer. Arguably as good a defensive coordinator as there was on the West Coast for the last two years was Alex Grinch. Yep. The fact that Urban Meyer was able to hire him, there were some extenuating circumstances. Grinch is a Ohio guy. His wife is from there. But he turned down a lot more money from some, uh, I think, at least two other schools I know of. And I'm talking like half a million dollars plus to, to go to Ohio State. And I think that was, a, that was a fantastic hire for him. I thought also it was big to keep Ryan Day there on the offensive staff. He had a chance to be an offensive coordinator with, with Mike Vrabel with the Tennessee Titans. So I think sometimes it's also the coaches you don't lose. Good point. Bart from Madison, Wisconsin says, well, it's addressed to me, but let's both answer it. In, your most, in my most recent All-American mailbag, I was asked about one NCAA rule I would change if I could, and I said um, the transfer rule. But his question for, for me and Bruce is, if you could change one 
in-game rule for college football, what would it be? Personally, I'd remove the rule of stopping the clock after each first down as this rule serves little purpose and only adds to the length of the game. For me, it, I don't like the, the targeting rule. I just I think it, it takes so much time the way it's set up right now. I think maybe maybe I don't like how they've handled it because I think realistically there's a lot of stuff that goes on that it's such a bang bang play. I mean, at some point, you know, I know safety issues are very important, but I think there's certain things that you just you know, where is the guy supposed to supposed to hit the player? I mean, at one point it's almost like, well, if he doesn't do that, then he's gonna just completely whiff on the guy. So I, I think the targeting rule to me is the one that I think still needs a lot of work. I think the targeting rule is, from all indications, accomplishing what they wanted to in terms of cutting down on some of the really dangerous hits. The problem is it's disrupting games and costing guys playing time for something that at the end of the day is very, in a lot of cases, it's just not that obvious. It's a very, very... I mean, I still don't, after all these years, I can still watch a play and not be sure if it's targeting or not targeting. You can count on Twitter if it's a big game. Well, actually, I find on Twitter nobody ever thinks anything is targeting. But it, the point is, it's it's very unclear. And then, of course, in real time, the official on the field, it's a bang-bang play. I would guess most of the time that's an extremely hard decision to make on the field. But whatever decision he does make puts tremendous burden on the replay crew of whether or not to overturn it so i agree with you on all those things uh, what do you think of what do you think about bart's bart's assertion here about the clock stoppage after each first down do you like it do you hate it can you live with it um i can live with it but i i guess i would say it's like what's what's the purpose <laughs> i understand what's the purpose in the first i mean in the um last two minutes of the half in the last two minutes of the game but why does it need to stop all game long yeah, I, I can live with it. Uh, I'll be honest. I'm not the one who hates the length. Of, and college games are longer than NFL games. I'm not the one who, who – that doesn't bother me, that, to be honest. All right, so I got one for you, but it's not a rule. It's a way that stats are kept. It drives me crazy. Is this that, quarterback sacks? Yes, that quarterback sacks count against rushing yards. Why are we still doing that? I don't know. I think it's probably easier for them to account for quarterbacks in college typically run a lot more than they do in the NFL. So I think it's a way for it's probably easier on the stat guys to keep stat people. Right. But so you, let's take a guy like Khalil Tate. Let's say he runs for 125 yards on actual running plays, but he also gets sacked six times and he ends up with 97 rushing yards. That doesn't tell the story of what a good, you know, just how right. good a running performance he had. I feel like the, I feel like they should somehow count against the passing stats, though I'm not sure the best way to do that. Again, I think it just slide, it can slide into a little bit of a gray area. How do you determine was that a, was that a running play or was that a passing play? I don't even know. How does the NFL do it? I know it doesn't count against rushing yards in the NFL. Yeah, they, I don't know how they how they account for it either. You're right; they don't. It's it's separated. By but the way, think, the only thing worse than the targeting rule was in the Super Bowl, the two times they had to stop and review a plainly obvious catch. Right, he took four steps before <laughs> he got in the end zone. Because right. apparently they don't know what a catch is in the NFL. Yeah, that was the, seemed to be the Jesse James play with the Steelers, too. This was even more, well, obviously they got it right, but it was even more over the top. All right, let's do this question from Matt Heatrick. 
Cal returns 18 starters, many of who were out last year. They have a favorable schedule and either experienced quarterback or a talented QB transfer. Can Cal be a sleeper in the Pac-12 North in 2018? Love the pod. Well, I think Cal moved in the right direction this year, even though they did not end up making a bowl. You could tell that on defense in particular, they were just... It was just such a different identity and such a different uh, uh, program than it had been towards the end of Sonny Dyke's tenure. And the offense didn't fall off quite as much as I thought it would. They just lost back-to-back Jared Goff and then Davis Webb. They didn't fall off quite as much as I thought they would. So to answer his question, yeah, I think they could be an even better team in 2018. But we've also, I think, talked about already how tough we think the Pac-12 North is going to be with Washington as a playoff caliber team, Stanford bringing back Bryce Love, Oregon we think will be much better with Justin Herbert healthy. I don't know. I mean, just thinking this out loud makes me think that the there could be quite an imbalance next year between the North and the South divisions. Cal could be a really good team and finish fourth in that division. Yeah, I'd agree fifth, with that. maybe, if you throw Washington State in there. Yeah, I would agree. I, I mean, I could see – I think Cal will probably – push past Washington State, but I think they're probably looking at fourth at best. You know, to me, I think Washington's clearly the class of that side, and then I would put Oregon and Stanford battling for second and third. But, you know, I really like what Justin Wilcox has done there. He put together a really good staff. They got a really productive running back in Patrick Laird, who I think really caught people's eye at the end of, at the end of last season. You know, he's an explosive runner. He runs really hard. I was impressed by them, and I think, you know, it's just you look at and go, okay, do they have enough horses on defense to be to win more than seven games? You know, I don't know. I mean, they, they you know, what what uh, what Matt was also uh, talking about is they did have some really good players who didn't didn't even play last year. You know, Demetrius Robinson is is maybe the most dynamic athlete in the Pac-12. He didn't even play last year. You know, he's a former five-star recruit that Sonny Dyke staff got, and he, uh, you know, he's a track guy, missed all last year. And we'll see what how this group comes together. They have, I think they have a chance. Last year, they were a pleasant surprise how competitive they were. What do they do in year two? How much better can they be? I was just thinking back to week one of last year when Cal went on the road and beat UNC and how strange that felt at the time. Like, how on earth did they do that? And then, of course, often as is the case with these early games, the season progresses and you find out, you know what, UNC is actually terrible. You know, only a couple years removed from an 11-win season. So that took the shine off that a little bit. But look, they, they had that Friday night game where they destroyed Washington State at home. You know, they went into the last week of the season with still a chance to go to a bowl. So I thought they made it, um, I thought it was a really good first year for Justin Wilcox, even though the record didn't necessarily show it. All right, finally, we've got a... That's an interesting one from Philip in Georgia. Guys, do you know if teams ever incorporate basketball scheduling into their football schedule considerations? For example, I've always thought a home-and-home arrangement between a basketball power and a football power would be interesting. Say, Georgia and Duke played a home-and-home in football with a part of the contract stating that they would also play a home-and-home in basketball. I think it could create some unique matchups in both sports between teams of different statures that otherwise may not happen. Well, Philip, thank you for your question. And I was DMing a bunch of ADs just because I didn't know off the top of my head. It sounded very plausible. And in fact, it happens a lot. 
like one of the ADs I talked to this morning in the SEC said, yes, we're doing something like that right as I speak. <laughs> so I think what happens, like of the ADs I talked to, there was only one who said he hadn't done it. And his point was the challenge being football scheduling, being so far out in the basketball window is generally discussed within a year or two seasons out. So that's a little bit of the challenge. But they do it across sports. Another Power 5 AD said it happens almost all the time where you play football. And he goes, sometimes you can negotiate men's basketball and women's basketball options. It's just, uh, it's just part of the business and how they do business. My only contribution to this is a random memory from about 20 years ago when I was still in Cincinnati. And UC was a power in basketball under Bob Huggins and a complete non-factor as a um, Conference USA football team. And they finally, finally, finally got a team that was going to have a chance to go to a bowl game. This was, I mean, now that's not that unusual for them, but they were going to get a chance to go to the bowl game. And it was the old humanitarian bowl in Idaho. Also to show how long ago this was, this was a day and age when there was just open bidding for these bowl spots, at least a few of them. It wasn't like the conference pecking order and i just remember that they were so desperate to get that team into a bowl game that they agreed to give boise state a home and home in basketball and bob huggins was not pleased very very nice those were good questions uh send them for next week to the audible pod at gmail.com we will come back uh, signing day will have come and gone by then we'll see what recruiting developments have taken place and i don't have anything else to add do you No, I don't. All right. We'll see you guys next time. If you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed, what are you waiting for? Please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. Give us a five-star review while you're there. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018, Trader Joe's, for making this possible. I'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink. Subscribe to my college football site, The All-American. Go to theathletic.com slash the audible and you'll get 20 percent off of this annual subscription and if you aren't following us on twitter already you can do so bruce is bruce feldman cfb and Stu is sl mandel see you next time